Our New Testament reading is from Colossians 3. Oh, no. Now I've lost my place mark. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to have to use my Bible drill skills. GE Power Company, Colossians 3. Okay. So, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you will be revealed with him in glory. Put to death forever, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you once followed when you were living that life, but now you must get rid of such small things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourself with the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of the Creator. In that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, enslaved and free, but Christ is all in all. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other, just as the Lord hath forgiven you, so that you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with the love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And our sermon text, back in Exodus. Exodus 7, we'll look at uh, verses 1 through 7. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and I will multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, I will lay my hand upon Egypt and bring my people, the Israelites, company by company, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So today we begin the first part of this climatic battle scene between God and Pharaoh in Exodus. So this is the Exodus we all know. This is what we think about when we think about the Exodus. Uh, Moses, uh, just to give you a little bit of a recap, Moses has given Pharaoh an opportunity to free the enslaved Israelites. Pharaoh has refused, and now Moses and Aaron return to Pharaoh, but this time they are going to unleash a series of signs and wonders to persuade Pharaoh that he is outmatched. Pharaoh, through his actions, has demonstrated the only thing he understands is power, and uh, God will show Pharaoh the power of the creator of the universe. Now, I want to step back to think about Pharaoh a little bit here. Because, you know, you know one of the things, let's, let's, uh, you know, Pharaoh's response in some ways is a bit understandable. Uh, you know, so for a moment here, I'm going to play Pharaoh's advocate, okay? So we're going to have a little sympathy for the Pharaoh here. Uh, you know, Pharaoh's entire life, he has been told that he is the image of the god Ra. 
he is the leader of the wealthiest and most stable empire in world history. Uh, so this must be going pretty good. You know, at the time of Moses, the pyramids were as old to the Pharaoh as uh, Justinian or Muhammad is to us. So just, you know, kind of think about that for a minute. You know, the scale of time we're talking about here. Clearly, Ra has blessed Egypt. Uh, Egypt's power has demonstrated that Ra and Ramses, uh, you know, who is, who is uh, one of the candidates for the uh, Pharaoh of the Exodus, uh, whose name means son of this God. He is the representative of this God, and so Ra must be the top God. This God of a ragtag group of enslaved people who settle in Egypt because they had no food could not possibly be taken seriously. So, you know, for a moment here, it seems like Pharaoh's got a good point, you know. We sometimes are just like, oh, Pharaoh's bad, but just think about his thought system. It kind of makes sense uh, if you think about where Pharaoh's coming from. And that's going to be kind of important here because that way of Pharaoh's thinking is going to be what's being challenged here. Now, as this passage begins, um, I really want to stop here and I want to address two issues that have arisen in the text that are a little strange, a little confusing, a little hard to understand, and I've kind of put them off. I've actually said a couple of times, look, we're going to get back to this, put a pin on this, we're going to table it for now, but I want to address them in this sermon uh, because I think this text is kind of setting us up for this. So first, uh, I mentioned over and over, God seems really intent on forcing Pharaoh to release the Israelites. In other words, the goal of the Exodus is more than just simply freeing God's people. If God simply wanted to free his people, God could have used any number of supernatural means to do that other than the plagues. Uh, yet, it seems to be really important over and over, uh, it's mentioned that God is going to force Pharaoh to make the decision to release the Israelites. So that's, that's one really strange thing. Now, second, and this is the one that gets a lot of press, and you've probably already uh, started thinking about this. God not only intends to overwhelm Pharaoh with these signs and wonders to force him to allow the people to go, but also God intends to harden his heart so that Pharaoh will not be persuaded to so easily let God's people go. Okay, there's this language over and over again about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Uh, we read that in uh, our passage today. Now, that seems less than ideal here. It seems almost at cross purposes because it implies that God is compelling Pharaoh's actions and then judging Pharaoh for it. And, you know, of course, this raises all kinds of issues about free will and fairness. And, you know, people talk about that a lot when they look at this question, this issue of God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, since both of these issues are going to recur through this whole plague narrative, I think it's helpful to examine them here at the start. Because they are, you know, like pretty confusing. And, you know, we're not the only ones who read this text and we're like, what is going on here? And when you come across issues like that in the Bible, uh, you know, that's probably the point. It's probably because it wants us to slow down and think about it. So let's see if we can think through these questions, understand them a little bit better, because by doing so, we can understand a little bit more about what Exodus is trying to tell us. So first question, why does Moses have to ask Pharaoh to release the people at all? 
You know, God can free the Israelites any number of ways. I mean, he could just like teleport them all away. Like God could do that, right? God could, you know, strike the people with blindness and the people could just like walk right on out, right? God could send a herd of magical llamas to carry them all away. I mean, we can just go on and on and come up with ideas. A series of 10 plagues is just not the most efficient way to free the Israelites. So why is God so intent on compelling Pharaoh to release the Israelites? And also, if he is so intent on compelling Pharaoh to release the Israelites, why does he harden his heart to prevent Pharaoh from doing just that? Something more must be going on than just releasing the Israelites or even Pharaoh being the one to doing so. So I think we're told the answer in the passage today. Remember, the Exodus has already spent a lot of time. It's already established the importance of knowing God's name. God's name is Yahweh. Now, we don't really get this across because, you know, our passages always translate this Lord, but we have this name Yahweh that's given to us in Exodus. It's like super important. And we have this whole scene in the burning bush in which this name is revealed uh, and we're told what it means. He will be what he will be. Uh, And that's being revealed to Moses. Then we have this statement that we talked about a few weeks ago in Exodus 6 that previously the ancestors of the Israelites only knew Yahweh is this name El Shaddai. Uh, But now we know Yahweh, or they're going to know Yahweh as Yahweh because he's going to lead them out of Israel or out of Egypt. Now, remember that in that culture, knowing names, names are super important. And Yahweh was not just recalling the name as a fact. It wasn't like just saying like, oh, I know your name's Trey, right? It has a meaning behind it. You know, our names for the most part don't have any meaning. But uh, Yahweh and their names back then were super important. And we've talked about that uh, a lot about the importance of Yahweh. But, you know, one of the big things that we made about knowing Yahweh is Yahweh is a name that cannot be known simply as a fact or a statement about some character uh, trait of God. It's more known by experiencing God, by what he does in relationship with God. So that's the importance of the name Yahweh. Now, if we look at our passage today and we go to verse 5, okay? So if we look at 7 verse 5. It says, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out from among them. Okay, so I'm drawing our attention to this verse because what I want you to see is that what we learn here is it's not just important that the Israelites know God is Yahweh, but also the Egyptians, Okay, the Egyptians are supposed to know about Yahweh too. And so what we need to understand, again, is that Yahweh is not simply achieving an objective here, but he's also communicating to Israel and to Egypt who Yahweh is. That's why the name Yahweh and its meaning is so critical to the meaning of the book of Exodus. It's super important. We keep bringing it up over and over again. God is revealing himself to Israel and also to Egypt, the greatest most powerful empire of its day. And we know that uh, the news of the events of the Exodus would continue to reverberate throughout the ancient Near, uh, ancient Near East, okay? In fact, we read in the Old Testament several times that this is the case. Like, we've heard what Yahweh did in Israel. 
uh, know the book of Joshua, right? You remember, you know, the famous uh, Rachel who helps out the spies or Rahab who helps out the spies. The reason she does this is because she's heard about what Yahweh did in the Exodus. So let's think back. Let's put this in the bigger picture here. If we think back to the story of Genesis, because, you know, if Caden were here, Caden would tell us, that if we need to understand, if we want to understand Exodus, we have to understand Genesis. And, you know, Genesis starts with uh, the first 11 chapters where there's this universal story in which God is acting with humanity as a whole. However, as the story goes on, uh, that focus is narrowed down to one family, the family of Abraham. And then we just start following the family of Abraham. And more or less, it's just a story about God interacting with Abraham and his family. There's some places where God reveals himself, you know, uh, to some other people, but mostly it's about God and Abraham. And so when we get to Exodus, Exodus is representing a pretty significant change in this story because now God is revealing himself in a much bigger, more visible way, not only to the family of Abraham, who are the Israelites who are enslaved here, but indirectly to the entire ancient Near East. So this is a very significant step. This is more, um, you know, going back to the story earlier in Genesis with a, a bigger, more universal uh, idea. So if this revelation of God is in part to the Egyptians, then why, uh, it, it, so if the revelation of God is in, in part to the Egyptians, then what is Yahweh revealing to them? And to the answer the question, we need to understand the Egyptian mindset a little bit better, especially as it concerns like religious, divine, spiritual matters, okay? Now, we live in a culture that if it acknowledges anything divine, right, that divinity is usually some kind of monotheism, okay? So, you know, we all know the monotheistic religions, you know, one God. Now, there are exceptions, of course, but typically in the West, when we're thinking about religions, we think about it in monotheistic terms. Now, now, like I said, there are exceptions, but my point is when we, we, we need to think differently when we think about Egypt because it is a polytheistic culture. And so, we're, so we've got to kind of get in their mindset a little bit. That's kind of hard for us because, you know, like I said, we only understand religion from this one side. However, there's a really big difference between a monotheistic worldview and a polytheistic worldview. Um, it, it's not just counting numbers of gods, okay? It goes much deeper than that. In a, mono, in a polytheistic mindset, it's all about uh, power and control, okay? And what I mean by that is each god uh, in the polytheism system typically has this uh, control. Uh, it, ha it, it, it has a realm that it controls. This god controls the realm, right? And it has power over that realm. And usually they're more or less indifferent to human beings, uh, and the point here, though, is that no one God has control over everything. They all have their own little spaces that they work on. And since their power is not absolute, they, they have a weakness uh, and therefore they have needs. Uh, so, you know, for example, you know, there's usually like a rain God or a storm God and they control thunder and lightning. Uh, but the sun can oppose that God's will. OK, and so. That means that the gods, because of their weakness, can be manipulated with offerings and rituals to bolster their strength. In other words, in a polytheistic system, you can game it. Okay, you can game the system. 
So if your society is dependent upon rain, you could try to help out a rain god like Baal and uh, boilster that god's power because you want that god to have the power because you want the rain and the rain helps you out, okay? Now, if you lived on the coast like the Philistines did, uh, and you know you like you like to fish a lot, and your economy is all dependent upon fish. You're going to uh, support the fish god Dagon, like they did. And you know my point is that it is through this system, it, it, it's all about manipulation. It's all about it's all about power. How can I give somebody power? And it's all about self-interest. So power, self-interest, manipulation. That's what you get in a polytheistic system. Now think about that in contrast to. Uh, what's going on with the God of the Hebrews, the God of the Israelites. If there's one God, and that God created everything, then what does that God need? Nothing. That God doesn't need anything. No sacrifices are necessary to increase that God's strength. That God has all the power, and everything is under his control. There's no way you can manipulate that God. You can't game this divine system. And furthermore, all creation and everything that exists, and therefore uh, it was intentionally created by that God and was created for that God for a purpose. And that purpose means then uh, that there are practices that are in accord with that purpose and there are practices that oppose that purpose, okay? Now, once we accept that idea that there's one God that he created everything and that he created for their purpose, then we get there's a moral imperative to life. Life is about more than just power and manipulating it. That's part of what Genesis is trying to talk to us about. Genesis explains to the Israelites and to us the purpose of creation and our place in it. And that is life flourishing in abundance. The reason we do things is not to obey some arbitrary system of rules by a capricious God, but to increase life flourishing in abundance because that is the point of creation. That is what this God created the universe for. In the polytheistic system, there's no moral imperative. It's all about power and who has the power and how much power and how to get more power. So Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites because he exercises his power toward his own self-interest. The gods could care less if Pharaoh does this because that's how they would have operated as well. It's only about power. That's the only thing they understand. Exodus purposely frames Pharaoh's assault on uh, the Israelites uh, as an opposition to the purposes of God for humanity that were laid out in Genesis. You know, we talked about that a few weeks ago, like uh, when we started this series about how all of this language from Genesis about like, what the point of creation was and how uh, Pharaoh is opposing that. Pharaoh's not just a bad guy. He's actually represented as this like anti-creation force. He's opposing the purpose that God, the creator God set out for the world. Now, furthermore, under monotheism, the relationship between you and the creator God is built on something more than each getting what uh, the other wants. Uh, because once again, God doesn't need anything. In that way, it is a greater and deeper relationship. It's about God wanting to be our God and having us be his people. God doesn't need anything. He gives us stuff because he wants a community to achieve the purposes that he set out for creation, life, abundance, and flourishing. Now, if all this sounds like things that we have been talking about all along in Exodus, you're right. That's, that's 
kind of the point here. Genesis and Exodus have been trying to explain this to us all along. And now, uh, all of these ideas are in conflict with a whole different system, the system of Pharaoh and Egypt, that is antithetical to these aims, and so it must be taken down. And so in order to do this, God must act in the world. And God cannot let Pharaoh try to game the system. That's how Pharaoh understands divinity. Uh, Pharaoh cannot appease this God like he can other gods. Pharaoh has opposed God's plan and purpose for, for the world. And now the Israelites and, and the Egyptians and indirectly the rest of the world must see that there is a different way. And in order to do this, this entire Egyptian system of hierarchy and power must be utterly defeated. Simply freeing the Israelites through some kind of supernatural means, uh, you know, as cool as some of the you know, magical llamas and teleportation might be, doesn't accomplish that goal. Egypt and Pharaoh have to know Yahweh. That is really key here. It's about knowing who Yahweh is. They have to be shown uh, that Yahweh is more, a more powerful force in the world. They have to show, be shown that, that Yahweh is not someone who can just be appeased. This system uh, could absolutely absorb uh, just uh, you know, another force in the world. This is more than that. This assault on the Egyptian system has to be bigger than that. Uh, you know, teleportation's a neat trick, but it doesn't really get across who Yahweh really is. And that's what the Egyptians, that's what the world, that's what the Israelites need to know. Um, however, Yahweh is the creator God who designed the universe for a, a, for a purpose is more than a powerful force. And so Yahweh has to overthrow this whole thought system. And especially this idea of the Egyptians that might makes right. Because that's what Pharaoh is operating under. He has the might. He can do what he wants. He does what he wants because it increases his power. And it's in his interest to do so. That's what all their gods did. It made sense. There's no morality about this system the way we think of it. Uh, and that is what, that's the thought system that uh, Yahweh has to take down here. Pharaoh and the rest of the world need to acknowledge that their system is completely bankrupt. And so that's why it's necessary for Pharaoh to be the one who sends the Israelites away. Because that will be the ultimate sign that Pharaoh and his entire system is broken. And so to ensure this happens, Yahweh is about to begin a systematic assault on all the powers of the Egyptian pantheon to demonstrate that Yahweh is superior to them all. So I think with that background in mind, we can understand a little bit better this issue about hardening Pharaoh's heart. So what's this about the hardening Pharaoh's heart? Because as soon as we read these parts of the story where we read that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, we tend to read it with our, you know, philosophical views about free will and determinism. And, you know, it kind of bothers us. It bothers us that, uh, you know, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are suffering, that they're having their suffering prolonged because God intervenes seemingly to counter Pharaoh's will. But as we read on in the story, we find that in Exodus, it's a little bit more complicated than, you know, God just zapping Pharaoh and him like totally doing a 180. Uh, at times, God does harden Pharaoh's heart. We do read that. However, at other times, we are told that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And on several occasions, we just read that Pharaoh's heart was hard, making it unclear who is doing the hardening, Pharaoh or God. So I don't think we can make this text out 
to be, you know, speak to these philosophical ideas of free will or determinism because I don't, I don't think that's what's being accomplished here. Again, part of the answer is not how we understand it in our context. And, you know, for some reason, like issues of free will and determinism are like really important to us. We need to understand how it was understood in the ancient Egyptian context. Now, in several instances, the result of Pharaoh's heart being hard is it's heavy. It becomes heavy. We read that word over and over again. Now, here's the thing. Here's what we know about Egypt. In Egyptian mythology, when a person died, their soul was judged by uh, their god Osiris. And the way this was done was their heart was actually placed on a scale, the scale of Ma'at. And if the person's heart was lighter than the feather of truth, their soul then ascended into uh, what was called the field of reeds, which was kind of like their heaven, okay? So that's what you wanted to do. You wanted your heart to be lighter than the, the feather. You wanted a light heart. Now, if your heart was heavy, what happened was you were devoured by Amut, who was uh, the crocodile god. So I think part of what's going on here, part of this heart in the heart is almost a mockery of Pharaoh. It's, it's basically showing that his heart is heavy. And therefore, he would deserve judgment in the Egyptian afterlife. Now, I think there, that, that's part of it. There's, there's something going on there, but I think there's more going on. And it relates to this overall idea of Yahweh revealing himself to uh, more than just the Israelites, to the Egyptians, and to the wider ancient world. And so it's possible, let's just think about this for a second, right? You know, we know what's going to happen. There's going to be these 10 plagues. Uh, you know, they're going to be bad. Okay. Now, um, it's possible that, say, early on in this plague story, Pharaoh is overwhelmed by one of these displays of power. And so what Pharaoh does is he just simply decides, you know what? It's probably better to cut my losses and just give in rather than to continue resisting, right? You know? Maybe, you know, I, I don't know when it happens, you know, the river turns to blood, frogs, I don't know, probably flies would get me, uh, you know, whatever. Boils would definitely get me. I think I would give up at boils, all right? But, um, you know, at some point, Pharaoh may just come to like this just really rational decision. Uh, he may perform, you know, an analysis. He may decide, you know, I might lose my slave force. That would be bad, but it's not the risk of, you know, any more of these plagues. Now, if Pharaoh does this, what has Pharaoh done? Well, he simply acknowledged that Yahweh is a powerful force in the world, okay? Uh, and has managed to gain the upper hand in this battle. Now, that's good, but it really doesn't mess up his polytheistic system here. Because Pharaoh would have no problem incorporating another force, even a dangerous hostile one, into his pantheon, okay? That really wouldn't change too much of how he thinks. They believed in other powers, you know. One more God, not a problem for Pharaoh. However, what wouldn't have happened in this scenario is Yahweh would not have achieved the goal of the Egyptians fully experiencing Yahweh as the one creator God and tearing down this whole system. So Pharaoh has started this whole confrontation, you know, back in chapter 5 with this question. Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. 
Yeah, right? Knowing Yahweh, that's like the big point of everything that's going to happen from here on out in Exodus. And in today's reading, Yahweh says that the Egyptians are going to know Yahweh. Yahweh must be fully revealed and Pharaoh must acknowledge his sovereignty and let the people go. That's the point here. So what God does, I think, if we understand this, if, if, if we're on the right track here, what God is doing by hardening Pharaoh's heart is not exactly changing his mind. Uh, Pharaoh has already shown contempt for Yahweh and his people by exploiting them and refusing to listen to Moses. I mean, you know, this is like the third Pharaoh here. This just keeps going on and on and on. There's been multiple chances, but this is a cycle. It's a cycle that's completely ingrained here. This cycle of oppression and exploitation. And what God does to Pharaoh's heart here is really just giving Pharaoh the courage of his conviction to continue the fight. Okay, so when we read about like their heart being hard, it's almost like giving courage. It's almost like he's giving them a shot of courage to, to continue. It's like, Pharaoh, I know that you really uh, don't uh, uh, believe in me, uh, you know, but I don't want you to give up uh, so easily. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you strength. I'm going to give you courage to continue this fight to its very end. Yahweh doesn't want him to give up and free the Israelites just because of expediency. Pharaoh needs to know who Yahweh is, is the creator God. And, and because, like I said, that's the question. Pharaoh starts off with this arrogant, I do not know Yahweh. And Yahweh's like, I'm going to let you know me. I am not, and I'm not going to give up until you fully understand who I am. So now getting Pharaoh to actually acknowledge that Yahweh is more than just a powerful force, but the one creator God is going to take a lot of convincing to someone who has heard the opposite his entire life and whose entire position uh, in life is based on an opposite conception. Now, uh, as we found out, it turns out that it's going to take exactly 10 plagues to force Pharaoh to uh, uh, acknowledge Yahweh. Uh, this demonstration, though, is, go is really not just about Pharaoh, though. It's not just a message to Pharaoh, but it's also to the Israelites, to the Egyptians, and to the wider, wor wider world about who Yahweh is. But it's also a breaking of Pharaoh uh, and his whole system. Uh, it's, it's, it's about Pharaoh being broken, and it's about doing so for the love of God's own people. What would be revealed here in this battle is not just a different type of deity, not just a different type of force than they had ever known, but a different way of thinking about the divine, about the world than they had ever conceived. This is a radical assault. And this would show that this would be, uh, this God is a God that couldn't be manipulated by rituals and does not need sacrifices, but instead chooses to have a real relationship with his people who cares so much about his people that he will challenge the might of the world's most powerful empire, who cares about an oppressed group of slaves who could not possibly provide him the glory and honor deserving of such a power. That's what this story is about. And this is something completely new. It would completely blow an ancient Near Easterner's mind. And so I think it's there. It's at that point that... Uh, that there's an application for us today. Because I understand that we do not worship the sun god Ra, and we don't really subscribe to polytheism. However, what we do believe in are powers and forces that control our world. You know, there are real power out there. 
You know, Pharaoh has actual power. I'm not saying that these powers are, are, are not real. They're real. Uh, we have them all. Technology, social networking, capitalism, materialism, you know, our professional uh, status, uh, physical fitness, politics. All of these sorts of things are like really important powers in our lives. And all of us, to some degree, seek to control them. We feed them. We devote ourselves to them. Uh, and so if we look at our Old Testament reading for Colossians, so let's look at Colossians. Colossians is kind of making the same point I'm trying to make here. Um, Colossians 3.1 starts off, it says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is. In other words, what it's saying is Christ is the true power of the world. He's the, the one God that rules the world, right? Now, the Colossians were all people who were polytheists. They formally worshipped other gods, and they did so in order to gain power and control in the world, just like everybody was doing. And Paul is telling them, it says Christ is the true ruler. They now live in accordance with an entirely different mindset. Paul is trying to break them of this view of power, control, and self-interest, just like Yahweh was trying to do by revealing himself to the Egyptians. And in Colossians, Paul is reminding them that Christ has already been revealed as superior. And that means they need to abandon their idols, which, which Paul then goes on to explain is more than just worshiping at the temple of Aphrodite or Apollo. It's these bigger ideas, re, rep, the, bigger ideas that were represented by those physical idols. And Paul lays them out here, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. Paul calls all of those idolatry, and then he lists the kind of behaviors that result when someone gives power to those ideas. Look in verse 8. He says, uh, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. That's what happens when you give those idols power. Just like when Pharaoh gives his idols power, the result is oppression, murder, genocide, and exploitation of a people. It's not going to be good. And Paul's point is that the Colossians are failing to understand that a fundamental shift that the devotion to Christ brings, that there's a fundamental difference. They may no longer be going to the temple of Artemis, and they may be going on church on Sunday to worship, but they have not abandoned the thinking behind the idols. They still have the Pharaoh mentality. Life is about power. Exercise that power and do whatever you can to project that power. And the problem in Pharaoh's case, as in Pharaoh's case, is that such thinking leads to bad things. It leads to, you know, in Pharaoh's case, slavery, murdering babies, and oppression. And Paul says that Christ leads to a better way of being human. This is not a good way to live. This is not the society we want. This is not the society of life, abundance, and flourishing that God created the universe for. So in verse 10, Paul tells us that we have a new self. And that new self operates in an entirely different way. And first, the first thing it does is it completely breaks down this idea of hierarchy and division because hierarchy and division was a product of this system. Instead, there is only one power in the world and it is Christ and we are all made in his image. Therefore, there is no longer these, you know, Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian. You know, Scythian, that's a weird one, right? The Scythians were like 
crazy people. I mean, that was like picking out like the weirdest people you can and saying like, we don't have that division anymore. I mean, that would have been radical. You know, there's no difference between slaved and free. Christ is all in all. That is an entirely different way of thinking about the world. It is such a big challenge. And, and once that system has been abandoned, then we are free to embrace our identity, this identity of God's image as the humanity that God put us on the earth to be, to be rulers of the world in a way that brings life, abundance, and flourishing to the world. And that looks the way God looks is that he revealed himself most fully in Christ. Verse 12 gives us an idea of what that looks at. What does it say? That you're beloved. You're clothed in compassion, you're kind, you're, hu- you're humble, you're meek, you're patient, you bear with one another, you forgive. That's what humanity is meant to look like. That's what a- a- adopting this different system, the system of Christ, where Christ I- I- is the one and all and doesn't need us to manipulate. And it's not about power and it's not just about what we can do for us. It's about how we can make the world a better place. And, and it is this principle uh, that Paul tells us is leading all toward what? Verse 14, above all, clothe yourselves with love. Love is the principle that all this is leading to because that is what the relationship of Yahweh being our God and we being his people is all about. It's why the universe was created. It's why we were put on this earth. And it's why Pharaoh and his attempts to control the world for his own self is wrong. It's why all such attempts to manipulate others by creating division and hierarchy is wrong. They are a perversion of the purpose God has set out for his creation. And Christ has shown them all a fraud. And instead, he's shown us the real way to be human and what it looks like. And the way that that looks is love. As a result of a world, and the the result of a world based on love and not on division and hierarchy and not on the manipulation of power is a world that, as Paul puts it at the end of verse 14, is a world in which everything is bound in perfect harmony. You know, the Hebrews had a great word for this, right? They called it shalom. This is shalom. This is the world of peace and harmony. We are not there yet. The Bible is very clear on that. Uh, The newspaper is very clear on that. Well, if you read newspapers anymore. Um, Yeah, we're not there. But what Colossians is telling us is that Christ is already reigning. The world may have not caught up to it, but Christ is reigning. And it's our job, our job as Christ's followers, to stand up in the world and show the world a better way. Who be the ones who abandon ideas of hierarchy and division. Who are the ones who stop trying to manipulate the world for the sake of power. We don't need to do that. Instead, we need to be the ones who use the power that Christ has given us to create the, God, the kind of world that God has designed the world to be. A world based on love that leads to harmony of life and flourishing and abundance. And to do so is practicing resurrection. All right. Sermon for today. Who has any thoughts?